to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Everyday theology, we have it's gonna it's a heavier topic, and I think it's an appropriate topic given what's going on within the world today. But with me to talk about that topic is Ashley Island. Thank you so much, Ashley, for being here with me today. Aaron, it's a joy and an honor. Thanks for having me. Uh, I we got introduced because my editor, the person who does just a great job at taking care of the sound and putting these podcasts together, was. Uh, you were his pastor for a time, and so it was a beautiful kind of connection. Um, so shout out to Jackson for doing that for us and connecting us. Um, so my guests know a little bit about you. A- Ashley is a, she's a speaker, she's a pastor, she's an author, uh, has a book out now called Humankind, uh, talking about how to reclaim human worth and embrace radical kindness. But today we had Ashley on to talk about kind of what's going on with our cultural moment, the things that we see happening around us in light of the the recent murder of George Floyd. So Ashley, before we dive into that conversation, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit to us and so our, our listeners can get to know you? I would love to. I... I could talk about what I do in depth, but I think a lot of what will inform this conversation is who I am and some of the more personal hats that I wear. I'm a mother of three. My oldest is five. My youngest is 18 months old. And my family, my husband and I, who is a worship pastor at our church as well, we are marked by adoption. So we are adoptive parents. We are living in the Midwest, but I'm originally from Houston, Texas, went to college on the West Coast in Los Angeles. And so my life has taken me through multiple environments and cultural terrains um, that have marked me and shaped me in really significant ways. I think uh, as a pastor, I'm always interested in the specific moment and not just the moment, but the environment and the way that scripture and the word of God informs a specific body of people. And so, yeah, I've, I've had the opportunity to live in various places. Um, my first career was in human resources. And then I, wow. yeah. yeah, that's <laughs> an interesting career shift. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I was not expected uh, to say the very least, but I, I worked for the Willy Wonka candy factory with Nestle USA for a time. So that was fun. Even more interesting. (laughs) We could just keep going down that rabbit trail, but, but, but yeah, I've, I've been pastoring for over 10 years now and it's been, um, the joy of my life and also, uh, really complicated and complex because people are complex. So, that's a little bit about me. I love baking. I do CrossFit, um, like to, to read and write. And so have some fun on the side there, but, um, did you get into the sourdough baking craze during quarantine? Not yet. I've stuck strictly to confections and pastry, like just (laughs) lots of of brownies and chocolate and, um, you could call it stress baking, I suppose, but it's the, the Willy Wonka influence. That's right. It's just the sugars (laughs) in my blood at this point. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting time in quarantine, but we're trying to have fun with it too. With, with that kind of interesting time in quarantine, of course, we're in this really strange moment in our 
in our world, but then especially in our country, where in the midst of quarantine, we are confronted yet again with racism and with the outcry of racism. And so if you wouldn't mind, because, you know, we're here having a conversation, we're going to have a conversation today on, on this kind of moment. So let me ask this question, Ashley, why do you feel like we have the cultural, like, like what you told me earlier, cultural temperature that we do today? What is leading up to, I think there's so many people who are, you know, honestly, just white and middle-class Americans who struggle with understanding why this is what it is at the moment. And if you wouldn't mind kind of maybe deconstructing that for our listeners and helping us process where to go from here. Yeah. Well, in my experience as a black woman in America, I, from what I know of um, black people's history in our country, this has been, um, a lament of people of color for 400 years. And it's played, you know, racism and systemic injustice have played uh, themselves out in various capacities. But I think there are a few unique intersecting factors that make what we're seeing now so prevalent and, um, and heated. One, we're in this time where folks are at home, so they're paying more attention to what's going on in the world. Um, and yeah. that's, that's a generalization. I know some folks are out of work and maybe are essential workers and are still serving in their job roles. But for the most part, we have more time to pay attention uh, outside of the rhythms of our daily lives. And so when you see an Ahmad Arbery happen in the beginning of the year, and we hear about that over social media and in the news headlines, and then you have a Breonna Taylor happen, um, a woman who was sh- shot and killed in her own home. And then you have just mere days later, the news of George Floyd um, being killed. There's this um, incessant grief that I I feel has been so layered that it's now bubbling over into an inignorable cry to be heard. And, um, and it's really born out of deep, deep generational pain. And so for most of, uh, a lot of my friends who are white, um, even a couple of family members who are white and my surrounding communities, my neighborhood, racism is optional in terms of engagement. If one does not have to live it on a daily basis, And so Mm. a lot of folks have the privilege of being able to opt in to reading up on history or uh, scrolling through a news headline or watching a conflict happen on on television. Don't have to deal with the the day to day aggravations of what it means to be a person of color in our country, like at the grocery store or as you're driving from home to work or even in uh, complexities of, of, um, of being passed over for a job and wondering, is it, is it because of my skin color? Yeah. Those are, those are daily aggravations that uh, especially middle-class white people don't have to um, experience on a daily basis. And so now I think the accumulation of, that pain and that anger, uh, we're seeing that play out in real time all around us. And um, I, th- I think the Black community especially is saying we need to be heard and we want to be heard. 
I, I definitely think some of those microaggressions, when we think about kind of that, you know, the, the small daily things that are happening when, when you say that and, and, you know, me being white, of course, like I hear that and I go, I just can't understand. Mm-hmm. But, but I think the, the admission of saying I can't understand allows space for someone to say, I can't understand, but I can listen to your story. Yes. Whereas for other people, they might just express, well, I do understand. I deal with that too. And it's just not the same. And that's so hard for some people to come and recognize because they assume that their situation is just the same as everyone else's situation all the time. Right. And, and they live in this, you know, lens of their own experience. Well, my experience says this, so this must be the way it is for everyone else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so hard, especially for white Americans in a country in which we have dominantly had the easiest time with the, the power structure has been built around our culture, our, our, our whiteness. And it's, I don't know if you could say anything, Ashley, to like, how do we help people who maybe initially have that attitude of being like, well, I understand kind of microaggressions. I understand, you know, getting cut off and, you know, whatever it is that they might assume is that microaggression. How do you help? How can you help those in my situation kind of reflect and go, oh, that's what you mean by that. And here's how it's different. Yeah. Yeah, I think anyone can experience a microaggression, but to understand the systems in which those are playing out creates a whole new lens by which you see the idea of systemic racism. And so just as you were talking about, Aaron, there are systems within our country that were built for whiteness, built to advance um, white supremacy and the the dominance of, of power around whiteness. And so in order to do that, there are ways both explicit and implicit that we can do that with a minority group. And so it's not just, oh, I experienced this microaggression, but this microaggression further prevents me from being able to step into an equitable society where I'm also able to accumulate wealth for my family or to give my kids equal educational opportunities. So it's not just about the moment or the instance or the circumstance that's happening in real time. It's about the larger narrative and the generational impact that over, again, hundreds of years, this has put people of color at a grave disadvantage in our country. And so, yes, I mean, when you talk about Uh, privilege and white privilege, the case is often made to say, well, you know, I didn't grow up with money. Um, I didn't have, you know, um, someone pass down generational wealth to me. Uh, I've had a hard time. I only had one parent and that's true. And we should not minimize other people's um, upbringing or, or, or hardships in that way. But, um, that, that didn't prevent them from benefiting systemically in certain ways over people of color who've been oppressed for hundreds of years. So I think the, the work is to not just understand day-to-day interactions, although that's helpful and it should be done in proximity and in trusted relationship. I think um, for me to be able to tell my white friends, hey, this happened to me today and it was really frustrating is one thing. But for my white brothers and sisters to do the work of understanding the the history of not just our country, but how modern day 
suburbs were created or the educational system came to be, um, all of those play a part in shaping and forming this idea that, oh, I might be standing up for and trying to understand inequality, but that's different from equity. That's different from actively pursuing um, the equitable treatment and opportunity of people of color in this country that have been, um, that's been taken from them for so long. So if I can ask a quick question, because I think that there might be a lot of people who don't recognize the difference between equity and equitability. Mm-hmm. And maybe if you can express that a little bit to our listeners, because I think that is a hard thing to grasp. We think that, well, everyone has the same chance. Everyone can mm-hmm. still go to college. Everyone can like, right. Like, you know, I, I can hear, and I've heard even in conversations, someone say something like, well, you know, African-American people, they can go to college just like anyone else. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't, equal equitability. And if you wouldn't mind kind of going through that a little bit, I think that would be really helpful. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is the bootstraps conversation. This is saying, if you just work hard enough, you'll, you'll, um, you'll be able to succeed in this country. And yeah, hard work is a value of, 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 of American society. But I think we have to understand, like, if you imagine a running track, if you imagine, um, someone starting at maybe the 200 meter mark and someone starting at the starting line. Um, if we're starting at different places on the track, then no matter how, how hard I work, no matter how hard I run, um, I, I will never be able to catch up. And, yeah. and that's what I think is the difference in saying, no, you can have equal effort, but we do not have equal starting lines. Um, and that's the result of... Again, even when you think of um, white flight and and suburbs and redlining, gentrification, ways in which our society was built around the exclusion of certain people groups um, so that they weren't afforded uh, equal opportunity or um, even the ability to send their kids to schools that were funded equally. I mean, we're still experiencing this today, but when you have, again, years and years accumulated where that's the case, where the starting line keeps being pushed um, farther and farther back, um, then no matter how hard the effort, uh, there's still this, we we can't catch up. Um, And so there's really good scholarship around that and resources and people who probably could explain that a little bit better than I just did. But it's really understanding like equality um, is around like treatment and um, potentially, you know, being afforded opportunity. But equity is saying there's a gap that needs to be filled based on what's happened historically. And that might require... um, unequal treatment in favor of the oppressed people group in order to make that, um, in order to make that gap up, uh, in size. So, yeah, you know, I think, I think so many people just have this picture of, of what it means when we say that people are equal, you know, they just have this picture of, well, that just means everything is, is perfect, right? Like the same, if you put in the same amount of work as the next person, then of course, you know, if, if you're doing the same amount of work, then you're equal, then you mm-hmm. both can get to the finish line at the same time to use that metaphor. Um, 
I think people want to actually claim that equality mm-hmm. without having to recognize the gap in equitability. Yeah, that's right. Because to, to say, oh, but we are equal, says that I don't have to give up anything. I don't have to maybe step back, right? If we use that track metaphor mm-hmm. and and I'm me being white and an African-American, uh, you know, brother being behind me, you know, it doesn't necessarily just mean I've got to grab him and pull him up. It means that at the same time, I've got to also step back. Yes. And, yeah. I, and I don't think, I think that for a lot of people, that means, you know, personal sacrifice and we don't like that Mm-mm. it means actually giving up something of ourselves and we don't like that and you know one of the questions i had for you especially as being a pastor how do you have these conversations in uh you're in the midwest right like yeah. how do you have these conversations with largely white america mm-hmm um, in, in saying, you know, being African-American, but also kind of saying, here's how we need to think about this, both, both just as racial issues, but also as a biblical or Christian issue. So I'd say that I love pastoring my community and our church in proximity. I think my favorite conversations are the ones in which someone's taken a risk to reach out and say, I don't understand. I want to ask questions, but I, you know, full disclosure, this won't be a perfect conversation. And sidebar, there are hardly ever perfect conversations when it comes to race and injustice and reconciliation. And so I think, you know, just parenthetically for anyone who's afraid that they're going to get the conversation wrong, that will happen if we are leaning in and doing the work in, in trusted relationship. Um, so just fear not and, and lean in anyway. And, uh, if we do this in relationship, then hopefully that will be met with much grace. But I, I am struck right now in our current moment by, um, God's question to Cain, um, in Genesis four, where he asks, where is Abel, your brother? And, I think we're being called to care about the whereabouts of our brothers and sisters right now. Like this can't just be um, a coexistence, but a, an interest and a concern and an initiative in mutual flourishing. And so for right now, I'm trying to help people understand, even if you feel like you've had no part in, um, in racism, even if you feel like you are, are not or do not have racist tendencies. Um, we have to actively work <laughs> still on behalf of our brothers and sisters of color in order to in order to right the gap in a sense. And so I think in understanding someone's personal context, where they grew up, where they live, um, where they work, that helps me pastor in a more personal way versus making general statements. Um, and that's fun for me. I, I, I love leaning in with people and doing that, that work of wrestling. But it's also to understand that this didn't just start in Genesis with that question. I mean, it's yeah. all throughout the Gospels where Jesus goes out of his way to be in proximity to the Samaritan woman in John 4. Um, it's a part of his high priestly prayer where he he just asks us to be one. He says, I desire that you be one as I am one with my father um, in John 17. Uh, I, I'm finding it very profound these days that uh, 
we see Simon, Mark 15, who's carrying Jesus's cross, um, to see, to see and to know that he is North African and has a crucial part of the journey to the cross for Jesus. That's, that's important to me. Um, so there, there are places all throughout the scripture where we see Jesus actively engaging the work of reconciliation. It's not a passive exercise. Um, it is, it's active, it's sacrificial, it's risky. And that will be the work. We can't, we can't av- avoid discomfort if we're going to lean in and be ministers of reconciliation in this way. Um, so it's helpful to know personal context to do this kind of work in real relationship and just to know that discomfort and risk are a part, are part of the journey. I, I, what I appreciate is that what you just said there is something that I, I, to some degree, and I'm not perfect by any stretch, but learn to kind of implement in my own life in the, I recognize that I don't have the language to talk about this issue mm-hmm. well. I have very limited language to have that conversation. And so I made it a point in my life to some degree to find people, especially people of color and especially people not like me to say, hey, if I'm talking about this and I say something like this, what do you think? Like, am I right here? Am I wrong? And and trusting someone else to say when I'm wrong and having that conversation rather than kind of being at the place of saying, well, no matter what, I'm just trying to get a stamp of approval, but actually trying to listen and learn. Yes. And, and there's certain people in my life that I will do that often with, I will call and say, Hey, tell me, tell me how, Hey, if I say something stupid, please just call me out. Cause I don't mean to say something stupid, but like you said, we sometimes have the loss, the failure of language, Yeah, that's uh, right. the, the failure of being in a space that we don't know, uh, the words that we're using. And, and, and the second thing is I love what you said about John there, especially the Samaritan woman, because so many people forget the whole literary context of mm-hmm. what's happening in John chapter chapter four with Jesus going to the Samaritan woman, we often isolate that passage. Yes. But this is right after Jesus is speaking to a Pharisee in John chapter three, where we get the most famous passage of all scripture that God so loved the world. Yes. And John was so clever enough to say, here's Jesus talking to a Pharisee. And the very next thing he says is, and here's Jesus doing it. Yes, that's exactly it. And we often separate those two things. That's right. And it's, we, we see Jesus doing the work of engaging the conversation and then acting it out. And yeah. especially now, um, I, I think this is harder to do because we are so confined in where we can go or, or have been in recent weeks. And so it's easier to engage perhaps online or to say, okay, the work for me is, is reading the articles or reading a book or, and that's good. And that's, that's work we should be doing. I think, especially right now, knowing our history is a foundation for the why we're seeing so much, uh, so much pain and, and so much response right now is really important. But then Jesus says, I'm putting my feet, um, to, to what I'm saying is, is a core part of my mission. And so, yeah, building those relationships. And for some folks that might be listening and going, I don't have those relationships. And so the work might be to say, how do I need to retool my life so that I, I can 
be in the business of building relationships with with people of color or who over a span of time will be willing to offer their perspective and lend their their advice and and their voice into my life. Um, so yeah, I we do isolate that passage, but I think to take the fullness of it and then and then to know that in Luke's gospel, you know, Jesus centers a Samaritan as neighbor. To say, yeah. you know, like it's not just, you know, I'm we love well, in the gospels we see people loving to corner Jesus and try and and try and dupe him, but um, he's saying, no, I'm going to take the very person that, that sits at the, at the outlying level of your sense of worthiness and who's included here. And I'm going to center them and make them your neighbor. I'm going to make them your brother, your sister, um, a key point of interest and, and concern. So, yeah, I just, if we watch Jesus, we'll see, we'll see how he does this. Which is what we should be doing, yeah, right? That's right. <laughs> But I think it's so easy for people to easily take stories of Jesus and just pull them purely out of context and mm-hmm. apply them kind of, you know, willy nilly to certain situations just because they can or just yeah. because they've heard it once. And it becomes biblical truth to them without stopping to actually say, is that really what this passage means? Right. And I think that's the same thing that maybe we're going through today with our cultural kind of moment that we're like really embedded in this moment where people are still using the same phrases that have failed and they still think they're worth using. Right. It's, it's the constant fight that I see happening on social media of someone wanting to proclaim black lives matter. And then immediately someone, you know, responds with, well, all lives matter. Mm And maybe if you can go through that a little bit, I think it'd be helpful. Yeah, yeah. So I'd, I'd say another common counter counterpoint to what you just said, Aaron, is someone chiming in and saying, well, all lives can't matter until black lives matter. Yeah. So it's almost like yeah. you see that string of three, um, three statements. And it's, I, I think what that, the heart of what that's getting to um, is to say, Black life has been devalued and exploited. And there are systems that still perpetuate that exploitation of black life and um, the the devaluing of black life. And and so until we can all say that we are actively working to re-infuse black life with with worth and to say that that Black life doesn't just matter, but it's crucial in, to the fabric of our humanity to be celebrated and to be elevated. Um, then we can't really say that all lives matter if truly what's tucked into the all lives matter statement is that, but some lives matter more than others. Yeah. Um, and so, and so the cry of black lives matter isn't to negate <laughs> that some lives don't matter at all. It's to say there's there's inequity in how much certain life matters over others and um, the injustice that's that's tucked within that statement. And it's it's you know, I've seen people posting the response of, you know, someone there's two houses next to each other. One is on fire and, you know, someone is, you know, hosing down the house that's not on fire and saying, Mm -hmm. you know, all houses matter. Um, And there's so many different memes that are trying to help get to the heart of it. 
But what do you think, you know, and I, and I'm kind of definitely leaning into this being a pastor moment because mm-hmm. you get to work with people day in and day out in the situations. Mm-hmm. Um, why do people have a hard time, I think, grasping that concept of of really saying like, okay, I can recognize, maybe I can recognize that all lives matter, but all lives can't matter until all lives actually matter. Yeah. I, this is just a hunch in conversations that I've had. So this isn't founded on good data or anything. This is just a human connection point. I think the white people that I'm talking to who have a hard time with this are, are afraid to be wrong in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think just across the board, aren't we all a little afraid that the values and the systems that we've built our lives upon could be flawed and that things that we've given our lives to or beliefs that we've given our lives to could be, there, there could be leaks in those. Um, yeah. And and to take it a step further, if we're wrong, then what do we then need to let go of? And what do we need to loosen our grasp around in order to, to make something right? I think if we're comfortable, we don't want to be made uncomfortable. And so to acknowledge that there's been an injustice that we have either knowingly or unknowingly played into, that then requires something of us. Um, and, and I, I think we're seeing a clash of, of, um, human identity and saying, what, what is my identity wrapped in? Um, what does this mean I need to let go of? And how do I reconstruct the true foundation of who I am? I think it's, it's a crisis for a lot of people, especially, you know, for my parents' generation. These are the tried and true values. Like these were not questionable or yeah, these could not be questioned. And so yeah. um, the fact that there's so many questions being posed could in a sense feel like a threat, but I'd say justice is not a threat. It's it's an invitation to a, a more full picture of flourishing for everyone. And so I, I think there's a lot of hard work that's being done, a lot of internal, yeah, just a lot of internal work being done right now or that needs to be done for folks to realize that this isn't this isn't a threat to you. It's actually an invitation to to be more whole and um to be more a part of the flourishing of all people of God. And and some degree, you know, this fancy Pauline word, you know, apoctostasis, mm-hmm. Greek word really, it, it, it should help us in some degree lean into this reality that my life can't be whole if the lives of people around me aren't also whole. Correct, yeah. Um, that there's this, there's this co-labor reality between all people that we often we often like to just kind of focus on ourselves, especially mm-hmm. in the U.S. We like to focus on us or our families, and we fail to see that if there's injustice happening in our communities, it affects us. It may not affect uh, affect us in the violence, or it may not affect us in some of the more harmful ways. But we're still affected. We can't be whole and have true justice until everyone has true justice. Yes, and correct. And, 
And I think this is what the struggle is for so many people, you know, and, and just kind of what I see as well as this reality of people just focusing and centering on themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think these protests that we see happening are a beautiful recognition of trying to care for the other, trying to, you know, speak out for the other. And I don't know. I could go into why they're being demonized or anything, but I mean, how do you feel as it relates to the protests that we see going on, especially about the people, the African-American lives that have been murdered in front of us as of late? Where do you see that taking us and how can people really be a part in healthy and whole ways? Yeah. The protests that I, you know, that I've been a part of. So my husband and I, showed up to one in, um, in our city and we spent time on the outskirts just praying over the land and over, over people. And, uh, for a long time it was peaceful and it was really beautiful to see folks, you know, the phrase that comes to mind is to stand in the gap. Um, and to say, we will not stand idly by and, and let this happen. So even if we weren't on the scene for, for any of those tragedies, I'm, I'm going to show up with my body and I'm going to show up with my life to say, I'm standing in solidarity with you and I'm recognizing your pain. I'm hearing your cry. And I, I want to be able to, to, to show up and be with and to mourn with you and to lament with you and to hopefully commit to, um, a more unified reality in the future and a more healing reality in the future. Um, it's tricky because, you know, we have seen some of these protests escalate to um, the destruction of buildings and businesses and, 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 in large, in large waves. Um, I think we have to be careful of the multiple narratives that are at play. Um, I, you know, a good discipline for me is to say, okay, if you see something, there's probably a, a, a counter angle or a different angle from which this is being reported. And so um, to recognize that at the heart of, I think, the, the most pure form of peaceful protest is I want someone to hear my pain and I want someone to show up in it with me and to be in it with me, Yeah, um, which is a very... a a biblical display of community as well. So, yeah, I I think, you know, I'm I'm trying not to, to view a lot of the, the narrative around the the protests that are more extreme um, because we can always find an extreme uh, if we're looking for one. Yeah. But, but to, to stay, to stay focused at the heart of why protest has existed in our country and the, the right to, to peacefully protest is to be heard. And so I hope that most people can say, okay, what am I not hearing? What have we not heard? And to ask the question of what needs to be heard going forward in order for us to, to be more unified. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I just, I agree, right? Like I need, I need to hear that because in, in so many ways, I think 
you know, it's easy, it's easy for me to look at kind of the protests and go, well, I'm glad they're doing it mm-hmm. versus saying, I'm going to show up and do something as well. Like right. taking some of that risk upon myself to say, I can also risk myself in this situation, which is a very Christ-like thing to do. It's the mm-hmm. very thing that Christ does for all people that sometimes mm-hmm. we're not willing to do for others. Right. Yes. And, and I know I've gone back to this a couple of times, but I kind of want to hit maybe this one more time. You know, especially in relation to being a pastor, because I think there's a lo- there's a larger conversation at play in terms of kind of everything else on the outskirts of this, but especially for us within our Christian reality, how do how how should the church, how should uh, pastors be at the forefront of these conversations? Because you know, it, it feels like there's a lot of pastors who have been silent for a long time. And now it seems like with this, with George Floyd specifically, it seems mm-hmm. that we now see a lot more pastors starting to speak out. Mm-hmm. And it's it's curious. It's it's sometimes it's frustrating, sometimes it's hard to understand. But what what should we be doing as a church? What should pastors be doing? And how can we as a church not be on the coattails of reconciliation within the country, but actually be on the forefront of that reconciliation? Yeah, that's good. Um, so I, I do think there is value to an outward expression on social media. So, you know, that doesn't have to look the same for everyone, but but to say, hey, this is not something that we... We're going to stand for in the church because the church itself and it, it has had um, a, a really uh, just just a, a hard history of um, complicity and um, has been the aggressor in, in in some ways when it comes to racism. Um, but I think one thing that an outward expression or a statement does is it can be a place for accountability to happen on the other side. So to say, you know, we're not going to stop here, but then for pastors to look at their organization and say, I'm really trying to reflect a heart of, you know, whether that's um, uh, multi-ethnic ministry or just diversity in general, then there, we have to, we have to look at the, at, at the foundations to say, am I actively working to include, and not just include, but to give authority to people of color to help um, lend their voices and lend their experience and their culture to our church? I think pastors should be doing a lot of listening right now uh, to folks in their communities. But I, I also think that on the other side of that, to get with a leadership team and say, okay, what are our next steps? What's our four-week plan? Where do we want to be by the end of the year? Where do we want to be in five years? Um, There has to be a a vision, not just for, hey, did we respond to this one circumstance well right now? Are people satisfied with the, the video or the post or the statement or the email? But to say, how does this inform the next four weeks to five years of our ministry in our heart for for justice and reconciliation in our unique community. I think there has to be a lot of collaboration, a lot of listening. And and honestly what might be hardest for pastors is to say, I'm I'm going to give up some of my own ideas. I'm going to give up potentially even some of my own power in order to defer to someone else who um, is more experienced um, 
or, or has a different perspective here. And so I also hope that pastors are doing the inner work too, and spending a lot of time in the secret place, just, um, getting their hearts ready to, to receive and, and to lead in that way as well. I think that's a, a good point to, to kind of recognize that in so many ways, there are a lot, I've been a part of a lot of different churches, uh, both just volunteering, but also kind of more in the inner workings of different churches. And I can think, unfortunately, I can't think of too many churches that are run by white pastors that have people of color on the board, mm-hmm. um, whether it's the executive board or someone who actually can speak into things happening. And these are some of the same churches that I've heard from the outset say, well, we're a place for all people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet all people really typically means all people who would be willing to accept our culture as the church, mm-hmm. not we're going to accept your culture and have your culture be a leading part of the church. Right. And I think that makes it really hard for, for us to say that we actually are caring for those who are people of color when we don't ever give people of color a position to make change or right. to speak into or to lead in that way. And I, it's hard for me to, to hear that and go, well, how, how can we fix this when we're not willing to give up that space and actually listen and learn as a point of not just bringing somebody in to say, hey, will you talk to us? But rather have someone say, hey, will you sit on around this table and actually lead us? Yeah. Will you right. lead us in this moment? Yes. Yeah. Um, that's that's the key right there, Aaron. We can do a lot of learning. We can do a lot of circling around this if we want. Doing book studies and guest speakers and seminars and webinars uh, at this point. But there has to be a, a decision from the very, very top of the organization to say, we are, are now going to take our learnings and we are going to put together a strategic and appointed plan to include people of color, or if it's a larger diversity conversation, you know, people from different age demographics or, or men and women, whatever it is, there has to be an intentionality and space made to interrupt kind of business as usual in order to, to make some shifts. And whether that's adding additional voices or to say, okay, do we have any, um, do we have any gaps in roles that we are anticipating in the next six months to a year? And how can we actively pursue a voice that will lend itself in our heart for reconciliation and to add a person of color in this role on purpose? I mean, that's, you know, part of the reason why I love our church so much is because we're having the hard conversations of saying, what do we need to be doing intentionally? And I love that our leadership team is leaning in and wrestling and our lead pastor is saying like, yeah, this has to be a part of the conversation. And uh, for him to say to to me and my husband, lead us, we trust you. Those are three yeah. of the most healing words that I could ever hear. We trust you. Mm. Um, and so th- f- to say, you know, where is that possible? And, and where has that been uh, not a consideration in how we, in how we lead our churches? Um, that, that's going to be huge to, to the way forward. For sure. Because I think you're 100% right. You know, that's so good what you said there about like we can circle around the conversation mm-hmm. until we're blue in the face. Yeah. But but unless real change is made, then 
nothing's ever really going to happen. And I, and I think about that with the protest is that people, some people get confused as to why protests are happening, but protests are happening because the ways that we've been trying to circle around the conversation haven't fixed anything. Exactly. And we wouldn't need, we wouldn't need protests if they worked. Right. Clearly they don't. Right. Yep. That's, that's right. Ashley, it's been a joy having you, uh, on our podcast and having this conversation with you today. It's a heavy topic, but one that we need to not just have the conversations, but then to see what we can do. And so as we end our time today, if we can do a couple of things, if, if you wouldn't mind kind of giving our listeners like some points of action to say, maybe here are some things that can be done Mm -hmm. and then tell us a little bit about your book and, um, why you felt the need to write the book and where people can actually grab it. Yeah. Thanks. Um, thanks again for having me, Aaron. It's been so fun. And even though the conversation is hard, I'm glad we're having it. Um, in terms of next steps, I, I created this reflection exercise for folks who feel stuck right now. I know with the layering of headlines, uh, it's easy to feel like there's so much to respond to that it's easier to not respond at all. And so, um, perhaps, um, I can share this reflection exercise with you. It just says to sit still before God and to ask God to search one's heart and to say, Lord, what is still, um, what is still here in me that needs to be uprooted in the way of complacency or fear or anger, um, in order to pave the way ahead for, um, action taken in love. And then I'd say, to uh, find some spaces in, in three different buckets. In the education bucket, where does more education need to happen? Perhaps that's in history. Perhaps that's in current uh, modern movements. Perhaps that's in a the theology space. But um, what can happen educationally for you in the next, give it four weeks, um, in order to learn more about this? Uh, the second bucket is what can you do? So, and this is where some of the risk might happen to say, do I show up to a protest? Um and gather my staff together and do some display of lament? Uh, Do we have a whole service where we are hearing from our brothers and sisters who are people of color and inviting them, not not forcing them by any means, but inviting them to say, if if you would like to lend your your lament, that we can hold it with you, we will do that. So how, how can you create space in an active way to step out and uh, to step into some sort of action, whether, you know, that's researching petitions or uh, putting your resources to um, Black-owned businesses, restaurants, um, nonprofits, uh, predominantly Black churches in your your area, and doing partnership with those churches to elevate their mission. Um, so many things that can happen in the do space. And then the third bucket would just be relationally, uh, where you know. One question I ask some of my my white peers is, have you just reached out to your friends who are people of color, not to ask anything of them, but just to say you're there and that you see them. Um, have we done the relational work away from our phones, away from our computers, away from work as we know it, uh, to actually be the people of God with one another? Um, and if those relationships aren't there, how can a next step be made in, in reorganizing our life around spaces that are different from the ones we've been operating within? Uh, so those three spaces, education, um, action, and relationship uh, could be really great ways forward. 
And in terms of the book, I mean, I wrote this book anticipating there being a really contentious election cycle um, for 2020. And just I was tired of the conversation we were having and and the divisiveness around um, partisanship and uh, just was tired of of the way we were having the conversation. And so I wrote humankind memoir style because I do think that um, stories and narrative create in us a different level of empathy. And so I'm telling these short stories from the perspective of my own life to invite people to a kindness that is absolutely a characteristic of who God is. I think of Paul in Ephesians 4 where he's calling the people of God and life in Christ away from calloused hearts and into kindness and tenderheartedness. And so um, this is a personal story that um, encourages us in biblical kindness and that hopefully spurs us to closer proximity with one another and a deeper empathy as we navigate really difficult terrain ahead. That's Exactly what we need, because I think you're right. This is going to be probably a pretty contentious uh, next year (laughs) for lots of different reasons. And I think we all need kind of a big dose of that kindness. Ashley, again, thanks so much for being with us. Um, We hope to have you back sometime soon and that we can keep this conversation going. Aaron, thanks again. This was so fun. And thanks to everyone for listening.